Well, hello, Grove family, friends. It's good to be with you again. Um, I hope you are well. Hope you've had a good week. And uh, if you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you to grab some things for communion. Grab a cracker, a cookie, a piece of bread. Grab some juice, some water. Also, print off the notes from this message if you haven't done so already. I want to encourage you to grab a pen, you grab your Bible, and be turning into 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6 is where we're going to be camping today. And uh, um, looking forward to this, to this uh, moment with you. So ha- have you ever noticed that things are not always what they appear to be? You see something, and you're sure you have it exactly right. And then, then the light shifts, or your, your position changes, and suddenly things appear like completely different. You, you, might have been, you might have been ready to bet the farm, like a zillion dollars that you had things absolutely correct. And then suddenly you find out that you had it all wrong. I mean, it, it, it wasn't this way, it was really that way. Our eyes and our minds have the ability to, to play tricks on us all the time. And and if we were going to be honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that sometimes it's hard to see straight or to think straight. It's all all illustrated in optical illusions. Optical illusions are basically images, pictures, some type of graphic where your eyes and your brain will play a trick on you. I was on the internet this week looking at some of them, came came across this picture. Two guys appear to be standing and sitting on a wall. And you, you, I mean, you look at it and you know it can't be true, but the, here's the picture. So what, what I want you to know is that it really all has to do with the camera angle. They're, they're playing a trick on you. you. You think you're looking across the floor at a wall, but in reality what you're doing is looking down. You're looking down from the ceiling. The guy in the blue shirt is actually laying on the floor He just looks like he's standing up. Now, I know it doesn't appear that way. It's a trick. It's an optical illusion. It's being played on your brain. Or how about about this one? I mean, this is old, old. It it appears that these two red lines are actually bowed. But if you would take a ruler and you would put it up next to either one of those lines, you'll find out they're perfectly straight, perfectly parallel with each other. Optical illusions are visual tricks. Your mind is tricked into seeing something that's really not there. It's, it's what you're seeing is not true. And honestly, it's easy to do. It's easy to trick your mind. It's easy to be fooled by what you think you're seeing or think is reality. And that's especially true when it comes to spiritual things. It's the people of God. We're encouraged to open our eyes and see the big picture. And if you're going to stand firm, if you're going to be unwavering in seasons of life where things are really, really, really hard, like the season we've been in, well, you need to be able to open up your eyes and focus on the things of God, the reality of God, the strength of God, the purpose of God in your life. And that's what what this story is all about that we're looking into today. This young man who was forced to see what he really couldn't see. Stories found in 2 Kings. And it it begins with a question. 
And that is, are we surrounded or are they surrounded? Now, I know it sounds like a question that would be easy to answer, but for this young man in 2 Kings chapter 6, not so much. What he thought was reality turned out to be only a small piece of the big picture. So let's take a look. And, and, it, and it begins with, with Israel being in jeopardy. Israel, once again, was under attack. War was nothing, was nothing new for Israel. From the moment they entered into the promised land, Israel was at war. Their, their enemies were all through the promised land. When Joshua led them into the promised land, they had a five-year military campaign. From Joshua 6 to Joshua 12, it doesn't look like five years, but it actually was. Five years, at the end of Joshua 12, you're reading a list of 31 kings that were defeated in this five-year campaign. But, but, but Israel was also surrounded. The, the enemies were not just in the promised land. They were surrounding the promised land, the Moabites, the Philistines, Egypt. So Israel was forced to be constantly on the alert for other nations that might come in against them to fight. And as we come to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8, these are the words that are recorded. The king of Aram was at war with Israel. So the question is, who was Aram? Now, some of your Bibles may use the name Syria right here, and, and I'm, not, I'm not sure why, because the, because the truth is, the Hebrew right here very clearly says Aram. So, so Syria, Aram, what's the mix-up? Well, to help with the confusion, what you need to know is the names Aram, Aram, and Syria are really sort of kind of intermingled. The Armenians were actually relatives of Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, verse 21 tells us that, that Aram was the grandson of Abraham's brother, Nahor. So Aram was Abraham's great nephew. Now they were settled in the, in the land where Abraham came from, Haran, when God called him to move. Now, Abraham's family started out in Ur, down here at the bottom, and, and then, then, then Abraham's father moved the family up the Euphrates River, up the Euphrates River Valley to Haran. Haran was part of Aram or Syria. Haran was where Abraham was living when God called him in Genesis chapter 12 and told him to move. Abraham moved south, southwest, to what became known as the Promised Land. That's, that's, that's that area that's circled by the green. And because of their relationship to Abraham, you would think that there would have been a peaceful existence between the Israelites and the Arameans, but that was not so. The, the books of First and Second Kings record an ongoing fight between these two nations. And that war continued into 2 Kings chapter 6. Aram was involved in trying to waylay the Israelite army. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8 goes on to say, after conferring with his officers, he, that would be the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. Now, obviously, the king of Aram had some scouts out trying to figure out where the Israelite army would be moving, what path they would travel in. And, th and, and then when he figured that out, then what he would do is he would send his army out ahead down the road, and the whole purpose was to like, you know, do some kind of sabotage or ambush against Israel as they came up over a rise, which led to the next part of the story, which was provision. God was, God was constantly confounding the plans of the king of Aram. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 9 says, the man of God, this would be Elisha, 
Elisha sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place. I know you're on a road going this way, but beware of it because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God, Elisha. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was, he was on his guard against such places. Now, I've got, I've got to tell you, I just, I, just, I just love this. The king of Aram is carefully scouted, carefully plotted, found the perfect place to ambush the Israelite army. And as they're, as they're sitting in wait, God intervenes. God calls out to his prophet, which is Elisha. Elisha just simply says, not this way, go that way. And, 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 and now, <laughs> now Aram is completely completely, completely, completely confounded. And, and it left the king of Aram and his army twiddling their thumbs. It was, a, it was a truth that most everybody understood. The Lord took care of his people. He literally fought for Israel. You see it happening through, all throughout the Old Testament. And it's happening right here with the simple misdirection of the Israelite army. And friends, that's a truth I really want you to write down. God always, always watches over his plan and his people. When you stand with God, he protects you. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean there's not going to be any problems or hardship or pain, but it does mean that God is making sure that you are safe and will not be overwhelmed in your relationship with him. In other words, you can trust God. So God was providing for his people, the army of Israel, by simply sending them in a different direction. And as you might imagine, there, there, that, that caused an eruption. Uh, and, and to see that, we've got to take a look into the camp of the Arameans. So we're now moving from Israel over to the camp of Aram. This misdirection by the army of Israel didn't happen one time. It happened repeatedly. So many times that the king of Aram became enraged. And, and what he wanted to know was, who's the traitor? So he brought all the officers of his army in. He sat him down. He demands, which one of you, which one of you is, is on the side of the king of Israel? I, I, want, I, want, I want to know right now. Now, face value, the accusation made total sense. If the, if the enemy knows exactly what you're doing, exactly what you're thinking, exactly what you're planning, exactly where you're located, it only makes sense that someone on your team is spilling the beans to the other side. So the king lashed out. He was sure there was a traitor in his midst. He wanted to know who it was. And that led to a moment of truth. And the truth was that the, the thoughts of the king of Aram were really an open book. One, one of the officers spoke up, 2 Kings chapter 6. He said, none of us. Who's the traitor? None of us. None of us, my lord. None of us, my lord, the king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel, the very, the very words you speak in your bedroom. Now, you've, you've got to admire the guts of this guy to speak up. And even more so when you consider what he was saying. I mean, if you think about it, his words almost sound like they're coming from a crazy man. There's a prophet who God speaks to? I mean, sure, yeah, right. Tell me another story. It would, have, it would have taken a lot of internal fortitude to stand up to the king and make that kind of declaration. But this guy did, which raises the question in my mind, how did this officer, how in the world did he know this? Well, we do know that there had been some 
interaction with the prophet Elisha and the king of Aram in the previous chapter. In 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, there was a man by the name of Naaman who was the commander of the king of Aram's army. And suddenly he was found to be sick. He had, he had leprosy. And back in those days, if you had leprosy, it was a death sentence. They would ship you off to a leper colony. You were, you were pushed off and there you just kind of literally withered up and died. But there was a young Israelite girl who had been taken captive by Naaman in one of those military campaigns. And she, he brought this girl home. Then she became a servant to his wife. And as Naaman's leprosy was taking hold, she went to Naaman's wife about the prophet Elisha. And here's what that Israelite servant girl said. She said to her mistress in 2 Kings 5.3, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he, he, the prophet, would cure my master of his leprosy. Through a chain of events, Naaman, with the king of Aram's support and approval, ended up in Israel seeking out Elisha. And, and through a chain of events, Naaman was completely cured through Elisha of his leprosy. So now, several months later, as Elisha's name is coming up again, you know the king believes it's true. There's a prophet in Israel. Yeah, I've heard of this guy. I know all about him. He was the one who helped heal Naaman. So, so I can just, at this moment, feel the tension going out of the room you know, with the king because all the other officers there probably signed you know, as a sigh of deep relief. No one's going to die. And with that, the king devised the plot. And the plot was all about capturing Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 6, he, he says to some of his men, go, go find out where he is. The king ordered, find out where he is so I can then send men and capture him. So men are sent into Israel. Now, the, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. I'm sure you know that the kingdom of Israel actually split, split after Solomon's reign. Saul was king, then King David, then Solomon. And then after Solomon's reign, the nation split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel had their capital in, in Samaria. The southern kingdom of Judah, which was David's line, his, his children, grandsons, great, 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 great. David's line, was th their capital was in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom is in Samaria, the capital, and so I'm sure the men looking for Elisha started right there. It's what the slave girl had said earlier. I'm sure that's where the king sent his men. And pretty quickly, they found that Elisha wasn't living in Samaria. He was living about 10 miles north of Samaria in a little town called Dothan. And when Elisha's whereabouts were known, suddenly the king took the next step. Chapter 6, verse 14 of 2 Kings says that the king sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and they surrounded the city. Now, honestly, when I read this, I laugh. To capture one guy, one guy, a strong force, large enough to surround this town, it, it, it is sent out. I mean, it speaks of fear by the king of Aram, of what the king of Aram thought Elisha was capable of doing. And that brings us to the interesting part of the story, letter D. And that's this whole vision idea. You know, how it can play tricks on us and about the importance of seeing the big picture. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 says, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the morning, the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. 
Now, in my mind, the servant of Elisha was up early, probably prepping breakfast for his for his master. And I'm sure he's going outside, maybe to catch the morning paper, you know, maybe to pick up the milk that the milkman had left. And when he when the servant gets out there, he couldn't help but notice the horses and the chariots. The guy was probably at this point panicked. And not only that, he's probably running around the house and in every direction he's looking, he sees the force of the king of Aram. It, it, it threw the servant into a state of panic. And, I, and I, I mean, he's thinking here, we are in serious trouble. The servant ran back into the house. And in my mind, I can see him running right into Elisha's bedroom. And I, and I, can, I can also see the, the prophet like sound asleep in his bed, not a care in the world, snoring away. And I can just see the servant ripping the covers off the bed and pleading with Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, what are we going to do? What should we do? Now, I'm sure the servant was thinking, we're dead. You're dead, I'm dead. I mean, he would, have, he would have known all about Elisha telling the king of Israel about the placement of Aram's troops and how Israel had avoided that. Somehow the king of Aram has found out. Somehow the king of Aram has found out that it was Elisha giving the word. And now, this, now, now the king is coming to deal with Elisha. And if he's going to deal with Elisha, he's going to deal with me too. You're dead, I'm dead. But what's amazing here is how calm Elisha was. He just, he's, he's just been rousted out of a sound sleep by a crazed young man who thinks he's going to die, but there's absolutely no panic in Elisha. In fact, he brings comfort to his servant. He, he tells the guy everything is going to be just fine. In fact, in 2 Kings 6.16, the words are, don't be afraid. Have you ever been in a panic over some huge issue that you knew, I mean, the sky was falling. And, and, and as, as, as this thing is coming down on your head, there's some clueless person out there telling you that there's nothing to worry about. I was home from college after my freshman, after my freshman year. I was auditioning for a traveling group the following fall, August, September. And so if I was going to be in that group, I needed to put enough money in my bank account to make my car payment and my insurance payment and pay some incidentals for the whole year. I needed to put $3,500 into my bank account. I had 10 weeks to earn the money. And, and, and so as I'm sitting there with this going down, I, 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 I remember that, that, that there was a little bit of concern on my part. But I had a friend who told me that, that he would offer me a job anytime. He, I, I told him I needed $3,500. I, I needed to make it in 10 weeks. He, he assured me that it was all going to be okay. I, I went to work for him, and I got my first paycheck two weeks later. And when I got it, I opened it up. After taxes, my pay was 200 bucks. I was $500 short of what I needed. At this rate, I wasn't going to make $3,500 for the summer. I was going to make 1000 I was angry. I was in a panic. I went home, and I, I remember getting out of my car, slamming, the, slamming my car door, slamming the garage doors. I walked into the house, and there was my 12-year-old sister sitting in the kitchen. And she looked up, you know, as I'm storming in, huffing away, and she wanted to know what was wrong. So I, I, I told her. I poured the whole story out to her. I gave her all the panic, all the worry points. I laid it out in detail. And her response she looked at, my 12-year-old sister looked up at me and said, so what are you worried about? At that point, Stephanie actually almost quoted some of Matthew chapter 
6, verses 25 through 34, which is in the Sermon on the Mount, and where Jesus is saying, you know, what, why, don't worry. Why would you worry? Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. God takes care of them. If he does that, he's going to take care, care of you. Don't worry. And, and then, as my sister has said that, then she turns to me and looks kind of in a quizzical way, and she says, you're going to Bible college. I mean, aren't they teaching you any of this stuff? And then she, she, she ended with these words. If God needs you to have $3,500 to, to accomplish the next phase of your life, then here's the deal, Derek. God's going to give it to you. Now, it, it was not at all what I wanted to hear. I wanted to smack my little 12-year-old sister. I, and that it was coming from my sister didn't help either. But here's the point. It was exactly what I needed to hear. My sister was right. It was the true perspective. What was I worried about? And that's exactly what Elisha brought to his young servant, comfort. Don't be afraid. And then Elisha added an unthinkable sentence. Going on, he says, don't be afraid because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha simply prayed. It was a simple prayer. Lord, open up his eyes. Open up his eyes so he may see. Now, Elisha didn't have to go outside to see anything. He already knew what was out there. Elisha's faith and trust in the Lord was absolute. Elisha was, was, was certain, was sure that God would never leave him, never forsake him. And if the army of the king of Aram was outside, then Elisha knew that God was there too. Elisha was as sure of that truth as he was sure of the fact that the sun was going to set that evening. So Elisha prayed, Lord, open up his eyes so he may see. He prayed the prayer and, and the Lord let him see. Let him see the big picture. The true picture. In, in other words, God adjusted his vision. When I was 40 years old, my eyes started going bad. Maybe I sh should rephrase that. They didn't start going bad. It's like they fell off a cliff. One day I had 20-20 vision. The next day I wasn't able to read the words on a page of a book that were like literally right in front of me. And, and my eyes' deterioration hasn't stopped. Since that time, 20 years ago, every couple of years, I get to the point where I need to go back to the eye doctor so he can test my eyes again and give me a more powerful prescription in, in my lenses. And when that happens, it's amazing. You know, suddenly I'm, I'm kind of struggling with some stuff, and, and then all of a sudden I get, I, I get these new glasses, and it's like, I can see, I can see. I go from being blurry to being crystal clear. Elisha's servant needed the exact same thing. He was nearsighted. He could see what was right in front of him. What he needed to be able to see what was further out, what was behind what was right in front of him. So Elijah prays that his vision would be recalibrated. And assured that it had happened, Elisha sent the servant right back outside. And when the servant got back out on the front porch with his vision now spiritually tuned, he had a new focus. 
He saw right past the chariots, right past the horses, right past the armed forces of the king of Aram. Chapter 6 of 2 Kings, verse 17 says, He looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, isn't it amazing how a tweak of vision changes everything? Suddenly the servant had a renewed strength. His worry like just fluttered away. But this story was far from over. The servant was in for a whole lot more. In fact, a huge miracle. If, if this miracle wasn't enough, well, another big miracle was about to take place. So what was this miracle? Well, it was a fight without a fight. What, it's Elisha and a servant too against thousands? There's going to be no fight. And that's just like God. He's famous for making impossible situations possible. In fact, God specializes in the impossible. And that's exactly what Elisha was going to show his servant. A few minutes earlier, Elisha prayed that the servant's eyes would be opened. And now he's praying just the opposite. His prayer at this point is, shut their eyes. Open my servant's eyes, shut the army of Aram's eyes. Elisha must have followed his servant outside for round two of this vision cast. Because as soon as Elisha stepped outside onto the porch, the Armenian army immediately started, started advancing towards him. And it's in that instant that Elisha is praying. As the enemy comes, 2 Kings 6.18, Elisha says, strike these people with blindness, Lord. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And God God answered the prayer. I mean, like like that, like that quickly, bam. These guys went from crystal clear, kind of like my 40th birthday, crystal clear to not being able to see a dreaded thing. And that's when Elisha took the the, took the bull by the horns. I, I, I love it here. The, the prophet's now bringing about a ruse. I mean, he, he, he starts speaking to these guys. He says, you know what? I'm going to take you to the right place. Knowing, knowing that, the, that the army was there to deal with him, he feigned, I, I'm not the guy you're looking for. 2 Kings 6.19, Elisha said to them, this is not the road, this is not the city. Follow me, I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Now remember, it's like 10 miles away. So these, can you just see these blind armies, all their horses, all their chariots? I don't know if they left them behind or what, but you know, like, you know, three blind mice, a thousand blind mice, they're walking down the road, hands on shoulders in front of them. Elisha, Elisha says, you're in the wrong place, follow me. So they do, 10 miles. And he leads them straight to the capital city of Samaria. And that brought about a huge shock because now the army is not just like, around this little town, 10 miles away, now they are in the middle of the enemy's camp. Remember, this is the capital city of the northern kingdom. Elisha led this Aramean army right into the hands of the king of Israel and his army. And when he got them inside Samaria, Elisha's now praying again. (laughs) Here it is, chapter 6, verse 20. After the end of the city, Elisha said, Lord, open up the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened up their eyes and they looked and they were inside the capital city of Samaria. I mean, this, this confident army who had, been, who had been giving Israel fits for years was suddenly surrounded. I'm thinking they must have, been, must have immediately felt like Elisha's servant just a few hours earlier, stunned. 
and now scared out of their wits. I'm sure at that moment they thought they were going to die. I mean, they must have been surrounded like they had surrounded Elisha with all of the king of Samaria's forces. And that's when this whole story takes a twist. A weird end to a really crazy tale. When I, when I, when I, when I say weird, I mean, I mean like, like crazy, crazy, crazy weird. The story takes a turn that is completely unexpected. Now, if you had your enemy in your hand, the enemy that's been causing you problems, major grief for years, what would you do? Well, you'd put an end to them right then. You'd slaughter that army. And that's exactly what the king of Israel intended to do. But before he took a swing with his sword or he allowed any of his other men to do that, he looked to the prophet for a green light. He said in 2 Kings 6.21, shall I kill them? Father, he's speaking to Elisha. Father, should I kill them? And amazingly, Elisha said, no. Do not kill them. These, these are prisoners. You don't, you don't kill prisoners. You throw them into prison. They're, they're prisoners of war. But, but that's not even what Elisha recommended. Instead of throwing them into prison, the prophet said this. Verse 22. Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. Now, again, crazy weird. This is it. Feed them, then release them. But that's not even the craziest thing in the story. The king of Israel went further. Verse 23 says that the king of Israel prepared a great feast for them, a feast. And, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. The king didn't just feed, feed them. I mean, he, he laid it out. He put the spread out there. This is Thanksgiving dinner. This is all the trimmings. I mean, think of apple pie a la mode. The king had his enemy in his hands and he treated them with grace, love, kindness. And then he simply let them walk away. I'm sure, they walked back to Dothan, picked up their horses and chariots, and skedaddled back home. And the king's kind act had a powerful conclusion. Verse 23 says, So the hands, the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. How how could the king of Aram do anything less? When his army was spared, the king decided to end all hostilities. And so the king of Israel and his act of grace and love ended up bringing peace to his nation. And it was all enabled to happen because eyes were opened. Because a prophet, his servant, and then a king were able to see a bigger picture. And friends, it leads us straight to a point of application. What, what would God have us learn? I'm, I'm just telling you, the thoughts that swim through my head here are many. And so what I, I, what I needed to do was just kind of trim this down to a few. And so I want to encourage you to write just four things down, four thoughts that we should take away. And the first one is this. God is always at work. I love Psalm 121, verse 4, that says, 
Indeed, he, speaking of the Lord, he who watches over Israel will never slumber, he will never sleep. God is constantly busy. He's constantly working to accomplish his plan. It it raises the important question, what is God's plan? And I'll just tell you, it's the Great Commission. It's in your notes, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. God's plan is is that all men would come to know him. He wants the whole world to come into a relationship with him. He wants all of us to be his disciples. He wants us to be saved, to to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then he wants all of us to follow Jesus, to become like him, to grow in maturity in our relationship with Jesus. Every second of every minute of every day, God is working to try and accomplish these things. God's working to try to accomplish those things in you. He wants you saved. He he wants you to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I mean, my question today is, have you done that? And he wants you to grow, to look like Jesus, to be like Jesus, to think, to act like Jesus. My, My question is, are you? This is the goal of our life. To be a true follower of Jesus, we are growing to accept him as our Lord and Savior and grow to be like him. And it leads to a second point of application. And that's to keep focused on God's priorities. I need to wake up every day making sure that I am moving in the direction that God has called me. To see his picture, to see the spiritual truth of life, to be far-sighted out of what's out there and to move towards it. Salvation and then maturity. And then as I am on that road, having accepted Jesus and growing to be like him, my my life task, my life goal then begins to be to help as many people down that same road as I can. This, This is not a job for pastors. It's the life priority of every Christian for every one of us. And as hard as God is working to keep us focused on his purpose and his plan and his priority, you need to know that we have an enemy who is working just as diligently to move you away from God's purpose and plan and priority. And this guy is lying to you and cheating and luring and tempting. His goal is to take you off the road. And and you know, like I do, that once you get down wrong paths, down wrong roads, it's easy to lose hope, easy to give up, easy to walk away. So the enemy is constantly working to lure you into his trap. So we need to encourage one another as believers. In fact, Hebrews 10, 24 says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on, push one another on, encourage one another on. I mean, this is like the cattle prod verse of the Bible. I need people in my life who are helping me, prodding me, pushing me, spurring me. I need you to help me continually move towards the goal that God has called me. If I'm, not, if I'm going to be the person that God wants me to be, it takes continual focus of my life on that goal, and the same is true for you, and we need to be spurring each other on to that place. We all need to focus and help those around us do the same thing, to stay focused on God's priority, on God's picture, on God's plan. And that leads to a third point of application. We need to constantly pray that our eyes are wide open. Listen, friends, life is really not all that complicated. God wants you moving towards him. The enemy's trying to lure you away. 
These two kingdoms, these spiritual kingdoms, are literally at war with each other over you. In fact, Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He goes on in verse 12 to say, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I mean, this war is being waged in the heavens in places that you can't even see it, and it's a battle being waged over you. So so Paul goes on in verse 13 to say, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Stand, Paul says. I, I, listen, friends, I need my eyes wide open to this battle. Just like Elisha's servant on that day in the little town of Dothan, I need to be able to see that God is bigger than anything I'm facing. There's no power that is bigger than him. I need to stay focused on his priorities and pray that, that, that I see his truth and only follow after his truth. I, I don't want to be taken captive by lies of the enemy. I want to see and follow the truth of God. I want my eyes wide open. I'm praying to that end. And when I'm walking that narrow path, it leads to this fourth point of application, which is blessings flow. You, you want the blessing of God to flow in your life? This is the path. Align your life with the purpose and plan and priority of God and watch God pour blessing into your life. And we, we, we have been living in a hellacious season over the past two and a half months. The coronavirus has brought untold pain, untold turmoil to countless numbers of people, countless lives. We've all suffered to some degree or another, relationally, financially, emotionally, spiritually. And wouldn't you know it, but in the middle of this, we, the church, have been pulled apart. Is, is we're encouraged in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, to spur one another on. We've been told that we have to separate and not have anything to do with each other. And I'm just telling you, I, I see the enemy behind all of this just laughing at it. When we need each other the most, the worst, when we need each other to spur us on, we have lawfully been threatened and told to stay home. Now listen, friends, we we all need to pray that God will open up our eyes so we can see the big picture. There is a God, and He's calling us. He's drawing us to Him. And there is an enemy who is working just as diligently to lure us away. So here's the question. Where are you going to put your focus? On the temporal threat of a defeated foe or on the omnipotent God who's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine? Where are we going to stand? Where are you going to put your focus? Well, listen, for me, for my house, we choose. We choose the Lord we will serve the Lord. How about you? Let me encourage you to bow your heads. And friends, I I just want to ask you, how's your vision? Are your eyes open? 
Are you able to see the spiritual battle that is raging? Are you, be able, are you able to understand it? Are you able to understand that there is an enemy that wants nothing more than to take you straight to hell, to do you harm, to render you ineffective, to damage your life, to destroy your life, to leave you in a puddle? And there is a heavenly Father who wants nothing more than to wrap his arms around you and strengthen you and help you and encourage you and focus you and point you in the right direction and pour blessing into your life. The spiritual battle that, has been, that is being waged over you needs to be in our minds and in our thoughts. And we together need to say no to the enemy and yes to God. So Father, I pray that you will help us open up our eyes. As Elisha prayed for his servant, Father, I'm praying for all in my hearing that you would open up our eyes. Help us to see. Help us to see you. Help us to see beyond this moment, this day, this, this, this week this coronavirus. Father, help us to see beyond the tragedy that is befallen into so many lives. Father, help us to see the big picture, and that's you, a Father who is able in his omnipotent strength to see us through, to pull us through, to give us all that we need to stand firmly to that day. So Father, I pray that you will embolden us, embolden me, to determine, to allow you to make me the person you want me to be, and, and Father, to help everybody that I come in contact, everybody that I come in contact with to be on that same road. Father, help me to see, help me to be willing to go, to move, and to be for you and for your kingdom. And that's our prayer. In the name of Jesus, we lift it. And let me encourage you to join with me in agreement by saying, Amen. And now, friends, let me just tell you, the enemy is here to tear you down. And, and I'm telling you, he's probably doing that right now to you. He's reminding you of your worthlessness. He's reminding you of how far you have strayed down the wrong paths. And, and I, I'm here to encourage you with Paul's words in Ephesians to not give him a foothold in your life. We're coming to a moment of communion. And these emblems represent Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. Jesus knew the roads that you would be down, that were out of lines, that were out of bounds, that were damaging. He knew the pain that you would bring upon yourself through your sin. And what Jesus did is he went and he suffered in your place. He paid, he paid the penalty of that so that you could made, be made clean. Isaiah tells us that though our sins are many, we are made white, it's snow, from scarlet to white, pure. And it happens because of the blood of Jesus. Don't let the enemy lie to you. You have eternal worth in God's eyes, in God's mind, and in his heart. He wants you. So as you partake of these emblems this morning, let me encourage you to say no to the enemy. To say, yes, Lord, open up my eyes. Let me see you and take me to where you want me to be. Where you lead me, I will follow. Father, help us. Help us to trust that you are big enough, that you are powerful enough, that you are able, 
that you are able to make us what you want us to be. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you. We're grateful for your salvation. And, Father, we commit to following you, following your path, keeping our eyes on you. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes. It's our prayer in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, friends, as we get ready to leave, uh, separate through this video mean, let me, just, let me just tell you that I have a, a couple of announcements to put in front of you. First of all, on June 7th, uh, we are officially opening. And here at the Grove, we're going to be opening in, in three phases. First phase will be June 7th. And on that day, we're opening up our worship center and our nursery, cry room. And so everything in, the, in lobby A here in this, in this building, it will be open. Everything else outside of this building, the gathering place, that's all going to be off limits. We'll be, we'll be here. On, uh, so all of our kids will be in here. We're bringing our kids into service. The nursery will be open. The cry room will be open. So you'll be able to put your kids in there. We're, 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 we'll have everything prepared for that. On July 5th, four weeks later, then we're going to go to phase one of opening up our Grove Kids program. And on that, on that same Sunday, July 5th, we'll also be opening up our, our student ministry program on Sunday night. Phase, phase one of the Grove Kids will be getting our kids together down, down in the B hallway and, uh, and getting them kind of back into the swing of things. And then four weeks later on August 2nd, we will be having phase two of our Grove Kids, which will be our kids back to kind of normal. They, they are in rotations. On, on that Sunday, two months from now, they'll be back into those rotations. In phase one, our kids are going into their classrooms and they'll kind of be there and social distanced and all those things. They won't be moving around. They'll just be together in one classroom. On August 2nd, we'll be kind of back to normal with all of that. Now, I just want to tell you, we're taking all kinds of precautions. The building's going to be cleaned. It's going to be sterilized, sanitized. Uh, we, we've, we've ordered a whole bunch of new hand, hand sanitizing uh, machines that are going to be kind of all over this building. So they'll, they'll be everywhere. When you come in here, we're doing everything in our power to keep you safe. Let me tell you that a document is going to be appearing on our website midweek, midweek, and it will fully outline what we're doing. It will give details. It will, it will give timetables and all of those kind of things for our opening. And it will talk about all that we're doing to protect you on that day and moving forward. And here's what we want you to know. If you have any questions, we want you to, we want you to call us. If you have questions about our kids or our students, give, give Joshua, give Sarah, give Mallory a call. If you want to know what's happening in here in the worship center, give me, give, 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 give us a call. Call the church office. We'll be happy to answer your questions and help you out. And let me also say, if you're, if you're sick or if you feel at risk, if you're, if you're a senior and you're still feeling at risk, we do not want you to feel guilty about choosing to not be here on the 7th of June. If you feel you need to stay home for a season, then, then, then do that. We, we will continue to video our weekly message. There's going to be a lot more information coming about that next week because we're going to have to do it a little bit differently than we're doing it right now. But, but next week, you'll hear more about that as well. So, so get ready, mark your calendars, invite your friends, and we'll look forward to seeing as many of you as possible on June 7th. Now, Children and youth, Joshua and the Family Life team are putting together a bunch of activities for the rest of the summer. And that list will be coming out in the next two weeks. Events, dates, times, 
and all the other pertinent information. So I wanna encourage you to get ready to, to mark the dates on your calendar, and we're looking forward to being here in force to see those things happen. A little bit of information about camp. We have determined to not attend our planned camps this summer. Instead, Joshua and the Family Life team are planning day camps on our property. So you'll be hearing much more about those in the, next, in the next couple of weeks. In the meantime, if you have registered your child to attend Round Lake Christian Camp, then you may want to cancel your reservation and participate in our program here at The Grove. If you, if you decide to keep your child at Round Lake, that's fine. We support you in that, but you will be responsible for your transportation and, and communication and all of those kind of things. We're gonna, we're gonna throw all of our energy and all, of our, and all of our focus right here to have as many kids right here on our campus as we can have. So giving, as we move to the end of this lockdown, we're in need of you uh, to, to continue to help and support our general fund. Let, let me just encourage you to give your tithes and offerings. I know it's a hard time. I know that many of you are suffering. I know I, I just heard today that 38 million people have declared for unemployment. So I, I, I know, I get it, I, I, I see that. I, my, my heart is bending. And a whole lot of us are still employed and a whole lot of us are still able. So my encouragement is simple. You open your eyes to the Lord, see the big picture. And, and, and as, as I pray that for you, um, I'm just praying also that you'll just be faithful to your responsibility to help our church. So let me encourage you to do that. Now, let me just say there's much to do in the next two weeks. So I want to encourage you to pray for our leaders. I'm looking forward to seeing you in two weeks on June 7th. And I'm, I'm praying that you're praying for us as we are praying for you. And as we, as we get ready to take these steps, let's just thank God that we're at that point. So let's, let's, uh, let's work diligently to be busy about the task of spurring one another on to love and to good deeds. I, I, I love you all. Have a great week. God bless.